In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, O God, Amen. Tonight, we'll study together Psalm 77. As I said before, each psalm has a title. And the title of this psalm, to the chief musician, to Jetotham, a psalm of Asaph. The chief musician, many commentators said he is the Lord Jesus Christ. But others said the chief musician is the leader of the choir or the musicians like in David's time, like Haman, the singer, or Asaph. Then in the title to Jeduthun. Who is Jeduthun? Jeduthun was mentioned also in the title of Psalm 39 and 62. There are two opinions about two Jeduthun. Either Jeduthun is one of the chief musicians appointed by David to lead Israel's public worship, as we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, 41, and also chapter 25 from verse 1 to 3. So, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 16, 42, the sons of Jeduthun were gatekeepers. But there was another opinion. They said Jeduthun is the first word of a famous song at that time. So when he said to Jodothon means the same tune of which this famous song was sung. Then it is said a psalm of Asaph means it is written by Asaph. Asaph was the great singer and musician of David and Solomon's time. And also Asaph was a prophet in his musical composition. So in his musical composition, he was a prophet, as we read in 1 Chronicles 25, verse 1, and 2 Chronicles 29, verse 30. This psalm actually speaks about mournful soul, and in the first verses describes the affliction of the soul. Then the soul starts to resort, to remember God's work. So at the end of the psalm, this soul was comforted. So the affliction out of which the mournful cry of this psalm arises is presented in general terms, meaning there is no single indication by which we can understand which period it refers to, which period of suffering. That's why some commentators said it can be the affliction of the Jews in Babylon captivity or under Syrian in the time of Antiochus Epiphanius or can be a prophecy about the great and last distress of the church under the Antichrist. And the troubles described in this psalm National rather than personal, it does not describe a personal sorrow, but a sorrow, the sorrow of a nation. But also, it can be considered an expression of suffering of one person, like the psalmist. And 
it can be adopted by any individual of us when we are in spiritual distress, either because of strong temptation or a sense of that God is displeased with me because of the sins that I have committed. So this psalm actually can be used during this time. So in this psalm, the psalmist is in deep distress. The first half of the psalm, it's 20 verses. First half, he focuses on this distress. In the second half of the psalm, he tried to seek consolation. So he turned his eyes to God and to the works of God, to his nature, to his miraculous support for his people in the past. And the last verses of the psalm, you can see great resemblance of this psalm with the prayer of Habakkuk that we read it in chapter 3, Habakkuk chapter 3. That's why some commentator said which prayer was the original and the other quoted. So if the psalm is the original and Habakkuk quoted from the psalm or the opposite or Habakkuk is the original and the psalm quoted from Habakkuk. But both arguments are equally strong on both sides of this question. As I told you, it's 20 verse. We can divide it into four sections. One to three, the psalmist fervent prayer in the time of distress. Four to nine, the psalmist laments and argues with himself. 10 to 15, the psalmist meditations on God. 16 to 20, the greatness of God at the Red Sea. So let's start from verse 1. I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. So Asaph begins the psalm by recording how he was crying out to the Lord. The first two verses describe how Asaph was seeking after the Lord in the midst of his turmoil. Asaph is literally crying to God for help. He was emotionally broken. So in his distress, he tried to reach out to God for help. Any person who has ever endured a trial or endured suffering or endured emotional pain or endured any life difficulties relates to the words of Asaph in the first two verses. The intensity of the psalmist's appeal to God is reflected in the repetition. He said, I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice. I cried out to God with my voice, repeats again, to God with my voice. This repetition means the intensity of his appeal to God. And here we need to notice that Asaph did not run to a man for comfort, but to the Lord. And he went to God with a cry. Cry is a natural expression of pain. It's also reflected in the manner of prayer. 
His prayer was not internal, like mental prayer or whispered prayer, even if it is fervently. But the word cried means it was vocal, quite audible prayer, spoken, possibly even shouted aloud. When we are in the middle of stress, we say, where are you, God? Help me, God. Rescue me, God. He cried out to God, and he knew that God heard him. He gave ear to me. I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. So he knew that God heard him. When the psalmist cried out to God with all his heart, with zeal and faithfulness, God moved to give him ear to listen. Verse 1 seems to contain the sum of the whole psalm, consisting of two parts. First part, his earnest cry to God in his deep distress. Second part, God's gracious answer to his prayer. St. Jerome says, See how much trouble he was in, that he had to cry out loudly seeking God. A loud cry is essential when the troubled heart is far from God. Although he says, because of my sins, which alienated me from you, I have to cry out loud so that you would have compassion on me. Like when you feel somebody is far from you, you cry so that he can hear you. So St. Jerome said he was crying because he felt he's alienated from God. So he cried out that God may have compassion on him. St. Augustine says, But many men cry unto the Lord for the sake of getting riches, avoiding losses, safety for their friends, security of their house, temporal felicity, secular dignity, and lastly, even for mere soundness of body. All these things, according to St. Augustine, which is the inheritance of a poor man, because we should seek the rich inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. St. Augustine continues and says, For such and such like things, many men to cry unto the Lord. Scarce one for the sake of the Lord himself, to be united with God, to be in God. For an easy thing, it is for a man to desire anything of the Lord. It's easy to desire anything, but not to desire the Lord himself. It takes zeal and faithfulness and commitment to your relationship with God in order to desire the Lord and to turn a blind eye to all these earthly things. Then in verse 2, he mentions three things. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. So his cry to God was urgent. Urgent, why he said, in the day of my trouble was active, he stretched out his hand and was persistent because he said without ceasing. So his prayer was urgent, active, persistent. Stretched out, 
His hand was not let down. Do you remember the story of Moses when Joshua was fighting Amalek? And the stretched out hand denotes a steadfastness of prayer. Also, he prayed without ceasing. Nothing can be said to Asaph that will make him feel better. That's why he said, my soul refused to be comforted. So nothing you can say to him that he make him feel better. The trouble is so great that there is no place to find comfort. The psalmist earnestly and sincerely cry out to God, and he knew that God heard him, yet he was troubled and felt his spirit was overwhelmed. As we read in verse 3, I remembered God, and was troubled. I complained, and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. So verse 3 may suggest that his distress was related to sin in his life. Why? Because he felt alienated from God and troubled at the thought of God. I remembered God and was troubled. Anyone when he remembers God should be comforted. But he remembered God and he was troubled. So maybe he remembered his sins that alienated him from God. And maybe God is angry or upset or displeased with me. Or perhaps he remembered the grace and goodness of God to him in the past. And how God was not with him as before. This gave him anxiety and made him praying and crying that God might be with him as before. As we read in Job 29 verses 2, Oh, that I were as in the month past, as in the days when God watched over me. This thought overwhelmed him, covered him with grief and sorrow, pressed down with affliction. The word Silah means pause for meditation. So the depth and complexity of this struggle is worthy of meditation. That's why after verse 3, we find Sila is added. It's a pause for meditation. Verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. So in these verses, in the visuals of night, he thought about the history of the past and asked himself with earnest questioning whether it is possible that God could have utterly cast off his people and changed his character as a gracious and merciful God. So that's from verse 4 to 9. In his agony of sorrow, he was sleepless and speechless, as it was God who was held asleep from his eyes. That's why he said to him, you hold my eyes, speaking to God, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. As if he is saying that God prevented him from obtaining any sleep. And he was perplexed because of his inability 
to understand God's way. In verse 5, he said, I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. So start to remember when God was gracious to him. As I've considered the extent of his cry to God, considering what God had done even in ancient times to him and to the nation of Israel. He wondered why God seemed to answer those in the past and how he does not answer in the present. Why he answered them in the past but not in the present. If no good was in the present, start. that's why Asaph start to search memory of the past to find consolation. He called to mind the mighty works of God done for his people in past times. Maybe this will bring him some comfort. So in verse 6 he said, I call to remembrance my song in the night. Compare between now and the past. In the past he was sing to the Lord in the night. Now he is, cannot sleep and cannot speak because of his trouble. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. So Asaph's seeking after God remembered better times, song in the night, and it was deep. So he meditated within his heart and he was diligent in searching. He reminded himself of the songs of thanksgiving, which he used to sing to God in the night on account of received mercies. There had been times in his life when in the night, even in the darkness and sorrow, he could sing to the Lord. He calls those times and scenes to his remembrance when he could find things for which to praise God in the past. He was able to find things to praise God when he could find something that would cheer him, when he could take some bright views of God uh, adapted to calm down his feeling right now or to give peace to his soul. He tried to remember these things, for if he found comfort, then he thinks that he might f find comfort in the present. His reflection on the past times of God's favor led the psalmist to wonder whether God's favor had permanently left him. As we read in verse 7, Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? There are six questions here. With these questions, Asaph spoke his fear that the season of dryness and frustration might last forever. So, it's forever. God will never have mercy on him again. So, Asaph records the feeling of every person in the middle of a difficult trial. When we are in a difficult trial, actually we ask the same question. These feelings are recorded as six questions to which he seeks answer. What are these questions? Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? 
Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he, God, in anger shut up his tender mercies? And then again, Selah. So these six questions, let's go one by one. Will the Lord cast off forever? It is hard not to have the feeling of being rejected by God in the middle of difficulties and troubles. Second question, will he be favorable no more? Will God show him mercy and love again? He feels rejected and that things will never be good again. Third question, has his mercy ceased forever? Asaf wonders if the blessing of God's love and mercy will return again. Can it be that no more mercy is to be shown to mankind? Fourth question, has his promise failed forever? God made many promises. So Asaf is wondering whether the promises of God failed forevermore. He feared that never again would he see the favor of God, the mercy of God, and the fulfillment of God's promise. Can he no longer rely on what God had said and he has promised? Can we rely on the comforting words of God? For example, one of God's promises was that he will never leave or forsake his people. So, where are these promises? God's mercies will never cease, and definitely his promises will never fail. He is faithful to us despite our unfaithfulness. The fifth question, has God forgotten to be gracious? Definitely God forgets nothing and forgets no one. And he cannot forgive his own nature. His own nature is he is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. And the last question, has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? St. Augustine comments on this verse and says, In you, from you unto another, there is no mercy unless God bestowed in you. So he said, if God does not bestow his mercy on us, we will never enjoy mercy. And shall God himself forget mercy? The stream runs. Shall the spring itself be dried up? Or shall God forget to be merciful? The stream means the stream of, of the mercies of God. Or shall he keep back his anger in his mercy? When God is angry, shall he keep his, his mercies back? That shall he be so angry as that he will not have mercy? He will more easily keep back anger than mercy. That's what St. Augustine said. God will never keep his mercy when he's angry. It's exactly the opposite. He will keep his anger, but not his mercy. Because the tender mercies of God are the source from which all his kindness to the children of men flows. And again, after verse 9, Sila again. Pause for meditation. Asaf's honest grief is worthy of contemplation. To think about these six questions. Verse 10. And I said, This is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand 
of the Most High. So, the struggling with this question led the psalmist to change direction in his prayer. He said, what I'm saying now in my prayer will make me more miserable. So I need to change the direction of my prayer. The history of the past is the most convincing answers to this question. So the psalmist now focus directly on God's wonderful and merciful deeds of the past, when his love and protection for his people was demonstrated. That's why verse 10 starts, And I said, referring probably to what he had said in the preceding verses. Now he is correcting himself for what he had said. What he, these six questions were wrong questions. He should not have asked this question. That's now he is correcting himself now. He confesses that the unbelief is an infirmity, as illness, that caused the anguish to him. It is a sin against God. So he feels guilty in questioning God's love. This suspicions of God's faithfulness and goodness proceeded from his own weakness and lack of faith. So in the midst of the painful anguish between what he believed before and what he felt right now, Asaph intended to do as a means to remove his doubts and unbelief. What he decided to do to remember wonderful works of God, to relieve and to strengthen his faith is to remember. The word remember is when we remember the wonderful works of God, this what actually will strengthen our faith. That's why he was determined to remember God's power. That's what he said. And I said, this is my anguish. These questions are my anguish. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. In discouraging time, he decided to remember better times and take firm hope for the future. He will remember the years when God displayed his power, when he reached out his right hand and has done such great and wonderful things for his people, when he manifested his authority over all the earth. The same thought is carried on and expressed more clearly in verse 11, when he said, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. So Asaph will remember, surely, what God had, has formerly done for his people, many times far above their expectation, more than we understand or we ask. And will, Asaph will take comfort because God is still the same that he was in power, in goodness, and in mercy. His power is the same. His goodness is the same. His mercy is the same. St. Augustine says, Now behold him roaming Behold Asaph, roaming among the works of the Lord. For he was talking without, 
externally and being made sorrowful thereby his spirit fainted now he talked within he started to reflect with his own heart and with his spirit and having searched out that same spirit he was mindful of the eternal years the years before was mindful of the mercies of the Lord how God will not repel him for everlasting definitely God will not reject us everlasting and he began now fearlessly to rejoice in the works of God fearlessly to exalt in the same and Asaf presented three step process to encouragement and healing and we should follow these three steps when we go through difficult time what are these three steps it begins step number one with remembering God's great work his wonders of old so when you go through difficult time number one remember how God helped you in the years before definitely God helped us in the years before second step then one should meditate on these words take them internally not just remember them but reflect and meditate on them and what they may have to teach me today and third step to go and speak to others to talk of these great things with others that's exactly what he said I remember verse 11 verse 12 I will also meditate on all your work means I will think deeply about them reflect on them what are the lessons that I may learn from these number three and talk of your deeds talk of your deeds meditate on all your works he desired not to forget any of God's work but remember the multitude of his tender mercies and not only to call them to mind but dwell upon them in his meditations and contemplations in order to gain some relief by them under his present circumstances and number three and talk of your deeds for the good of others and also to glorify God that's why from verse 13 the psalmist prayer turned focusing only on God his character and his works Asaf explained the goodness of remembering meditating and speaking of God's greatness now in verse 13 he begins now actually describing God's good work where did he start in the sanctuary beginning in the sanctuary either of the temple or the tabernacle as he said in verse 13 your way O God is in the sanctuary who is so great a God as our God so after he was doubting God and asking all these questions of doubt now he is saying who is so great as God uh, who is so great a God as our God Saint Jerome asked what is the way of God what is the way of God because he said your way O God is in the sanctuary so Saint Jerome answers the way is the savior 
who himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the way is therefore the Son of God. The way of God is only in holy man. Because your way in sanctuary. In case we wish for God to dwell in us, let us be holy as God's way is holiness. So Asaf knows that he must go to the sanctuary to get comfort. In Psalm 73, that was written also by Asaf, he was confused why God makes the wicked people prosper. And he was confused until he entered the sanctuary of the Lord, where he found the answer, where he get instructions from God. In the sanctuary, in the church, God's way is declared, and in the church, God manifests himself. All God's plans and methods moves in the realm of holiness, separate from all sin and imperfection, in accord with the perfection nature of God. That's why when we live the life of repentance and holiness, we will understand the ways of God. And Asaf asking in verse 13, Who are we to question the ways of God? Our ways are simply not the ways of God. God is so great. In his greatness, no one can be compared with God. He is supreme over all. So this is the first reflection of the Psalms in regard to God. That God is great. God is great. He is superior to all other beings. No one can be compared to God. Then, that's number one. Who is so great a God as our God? Second reflection in verse 14. You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. So after he spoke, you are great. Now he's speaking about the greatness of his work. You are great in yourself. Now he's speaking about the greatness of his work. God is able to put his holy ways into action and has the power to accomplish his ways. That's why he said, does wonders, you have declared your strength among the peoples. God's purposes will be accomplished. We don't have control over our own lives and cannot always accomplish our purposes. But God is different. God does have control over our lives and has the power far above all else to help us in our distress. It is the characteristic of God, the true God, to do wonderful. So Asaf spoke of the miraculous works that displayed the strength of God as he had done time and again in the history of Israel. Every act of God, whether in nature or grace, in creation or providence, is amazing, surpasses all power and can be comprehended only by his own wisdom and is visible to all. Who are the people when he said, you have declared your strength among the people? People refer to all nations, people of the world at large, not only Israel. Then he spoke about, number one, God is great. 
Number two, his works are wonderful. Number three, in verse 15, you have with your arm redeemed your people, the redemption, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, again, Selah. So, God's work as a redeemer. Asaph also remembers how God redeemed his people. Many times through their history, Israel saw God's faithful strength rescue them from all kinds of trouble. This is the remembrance of the Exodus, like Exodus from the land of Egypt. One of the earliest times that we read about the need for redemption when they were captives in, in Egypt, as in the Exodus and the Passover, which spared the firstborn of Israel. God redeemed the firstborn. All the firstborn were to die, but God had redeemed the firstborn from the dead. Israel had been delivered from Egyptian slavery, and the firstborn had been spared to death. The arm of God, when he said, you have with your arm redeemed your people. Arm of God usually represents the incarnated Son of God, who has granted forgiveness of sin to all. So through his Son, he redeemed us from the captivity of Satan, and our exodus from Hades to the paradise of joy. Then he said, you redeemed the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Jacob and Joseph. So some father said, uh, Jacob refers to the Jews, old Israel. Joseph referred to the Gentiles because he lived in Egypt and married Egyptian woman. So Jacob and Joseph represent all. Redeemed your people, how much more can we bring this to remembrance when we are in trial? We should trust that God can redeem us. God has worked great things as our Redeemer, has delivered us from the slavery of sin, has purchased us from death that was owed to us for our sins. And again, Sila, pause for contemplation. Contemplation on three things, God's greatness, God's wonders, works, and redemption. That's what he recalled. God is great in himself. His works are wonderful, and he is our redeemer. The last part, which is very similar to Habakkuk chapter 3, as I told you, he said, The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were afraid. The depth also trembled. The psalmist in these last verses talk about the manifestation of God's sovereignty over nature. From verse 16. In that supreme act of redemption, when he redeemed children of Israel from Egypt, how he split the waters of the Red Sea. So he most likely had in mind the parting and crossing of the Red Sea as an example of one of the great works of God that he would remember, meditate upon, and tell of. As I told you, he remembered, meditate, told the people. In parting the Red Sea, we can see the greatness of God, we can see the wonderful works of God, and we can see the redemption of God. So he began by poetically describing the waters of the Red Sea as afraid of God and ready to flee at his presence. 
the water saw you, O God, and the water saw you, they were afraid. The depth also trembled. So the water and the depth of the Red Sea are personified, as though they were conscious of the presence of their Creator and Lord. They shrank from the sight of God and made a way for his people to pass over. Even the very depth trembled with fear and moved themselves, leaving the bottom of the sea dry. But the church father understood these waters are the waters of the Jordan at the baptism of Christ, when in their way they saw the incarnated Son of God and felt his sacred body laid in them in the waters of Jordan by which he was made manifest to Israel. That's why, if you remember, in the liturgy of the water, in the Epiphany Feast, the first prophecy from Habakkuk, in which we say, the water saw you and they were afraid. But then Jerome, according to the book of Revelation, he said the waters refer to people, nation, tongues, some of which saw Christ physically, and some spiritually and by faith and because the gospel is preached to the Gentile world. For us or for the children of Israel when they saw the army of Pharaoh behind them and the Red Sea in front of them, they felt they are about to die. There are obstacles here, but for God there are no obstacles on earth that are too great for God to overcome in order to help us. He moved the mountain, he split the Red Sea, he split the Jordan River. His hand, his mere thought are to be obeyed by his creation. So the creation obey God when he speak, when he ordered the Red Sea, the mountain, they obey God. That's why in verse 17, he start to describe a storm. The clouds poured out water, the skies sent out a sound, thunder, your arrows, lightning, are flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind, the lightning lit up the world, the earth trembled and shook. So in verse 17, Asaph describes a storm. It's not clear to what particular storm in history that he is describing. It was evidently some exhibition of the divine greatness and power in delivering the children of Israel. And we have referred to the extraordinary manifestation of God at Mount Sinai. As we read in Exodus chapter 19 verse 16, there was lightning, thunders and a storm when he appeared to Moses. But Josephus, the historian, the Jewish historian, relates them to the time of Exodus. He says that at the time when the Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea, rain descended from heaven and there was terrible thunders, lightning and thunderbolts. This was when the Lord looked through the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians. He said, your arrows also flashed about. Arrows here, the lightning compared with burning or ignited arrows. Also a storm of wind 
usually accompanies thunder and lightning. So in the reaching of the storm or of the whirlwind, the voice of God was heard, the deep roaring thunder, as if God spoke to the people. The voice of your thunder, that's the voice of God, was in the whirlwind, in the storm of the wind. The lightning lit up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Thunder is the voice of God as we read in Job 37 verse 5. Something in the whirlwind refer to wheels of the chariots of the Egyptians, which were taken off perhaps by force of thunder and lightning. The lightning lit up the world, not only the part of the Red Sea, but the whole world heard about it. So, Asaph described the presence of God as being so manifest at the parting of the Red Sea that the whole earth itself shook. As he said, the earth trembled and shook. Verse 19, Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. So, when God miraculously parted the water of the Red Sea, it was as if he cleared a great road or path for himself that he also gave to his people to use. But God was leading the people through the trial, although God's footsteps were not seen. And this is very important because sometimes we say, where is God? You cannot track him. God was with them through the whole event even though the people did panic, believing they were about to die, because they did not see the footprints of God, or footsteps of God. As in external nature, no one perceives God's presence. God is with us right now, but no one can perceive Him externally with our physical eye. Also, in the human heart, God works secretly. The ways of God were like walking through the sea. That's why he said, your ways was in the sea. If you walk on the sea, can you find any prince? You cannot find any prince. That's why he said, your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters. No footsteps. So the ways of God, like walking through the sea, where no permanent track would be made, where the waves would close on the path and where it would be impossible by any footprints to ascertain the way which God had taken. So when you think about God's action, God's deeds, God's plan, think about one walking on the water. There is nothing by which man can determine about them. There are no traces by which any person can follow out the divine plans, as none can follow one whose path is through the untracked waters. Then the last verse, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So Asaph concludes his psalm speaking of God as a shepherd who leads his people by his servant, Moses and Aaron. 
What a transition Asaf made from storm to peace. The psalmist was comforted by God's shepherdly leading of his people through the trouble. We see that God works both in great wonders, like when he divided the Red Sea, and in normal life setting, leading his people through the human innersment, Moses and Aaron, and right now through our clergy and our fathers. One never excludes the others. So God works in, in wonders, like in great troubles, like great sea, and also in the normal life setting. One of the beautiful images that God uses to picture his relationship with us is that of a shepherd. Like what we read in Psalm 23, which speaks of going through the valley of shadow of death, but God still leading us. This concludes Psalm 77. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.